All right. Well, good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing? Yes, I know. For those of you that are wondering why, it's not really that they're that excited to hear me speak. It's that there's a live person on the platform, because normally we're a video campus, so although that's very good also. But anyway, uh, but it is great to be with you. If uh, you've been able to uh, be a part of this series called Unorthodox, then I hope you're as excited as I am. I really honestly believe this series is one of the most um, pointed and, and prophetic series that we have taught in a long time to the church. I believe that for the times in which we live, this series is addressing the very issue that we need to have, uh, you know, in the forefront of our lives if we are going to influence uh, our society and our culture for Jesus. And so uh, I believe that uh, each of the, the messages has addressed that in some way. We've looked at Daniel a couple of different weekends. This weekend, we're going to look at the story of Esther, which is uh, a very interesting story, and so I'm really excited about that. And uh, amongst other things, we're going to find out the role that cosmetics and perfume have in God's great plan of salvation. So that's got to be exciting for at least some of you ladies. Um, but anyway, uh, we're not going to start there. I um, wanted to tell you something about the book of Esther. Um, it is the only book in the Bible, arguably, I guess there's a slight possibility that Song of Solomon would also qualify for this uh, award, but uh, it's the only book in the Bible that does not explicitly mention the name of God anywhere in the book. There's 10 chapters. Nowhere is God mentioned. Nowhere is prayer mentioned. So very interesting, right? I want you to think about, hmm, why is that, right? Why would God allow this book to be written and this story to be incorporated into Scripture that doesn't even once mention the name of God? Think about that. I'm going to come back to that at the very end, and I uh, want to see if maybe you'll agree with me on what some of those reasons uh, can be. But, uh, but Esther is a story about a young Jewish girl, a very unlikely candidate who God uses to actually save his people from complete annihilation from genocide, from complete extermination. And it's an amazing story. We're going to look at that. I'll be paraphrasing certain parts of it, and we'll kind of pull out uh, different little passages from it. But she is the least likely candidate uh, to, uh, to save God's people, yet God used her in huge ways. And I believe that in the same way as God used her, God has chosen to use you and me in different ways to bring himself glory. Do you believe that? I believe that God has a great purpose in mind for your life and for my life in this generation, in this day in which we live. But I believe that the only way that we're going to actually be able to fulfill that great purpose is if we ask ourselves certain questions. And I don't know about you, but I find myself lately asking myself certain questions, but they tend to be in the form of, what the? Something like that. I don't know. You know, fill in the blank. Or how in the? Did we get, you know, whatever. Anyway, you can fill in the blank. You know, I'm sure it's like, gall darn? You know, something like that. Anyway. It's as bad as it gets, hopefully, right? But, um, but here's the deal. I believe oftentimes we find ourselves looking at society, looking at politics, looking at the world in which we live, looking at the decisions that are being made and the way that things are going, and, and almost bombarded with that, perhaps intimidated by that. But I believe that God wants us to be asking ourselves a very different set of questions if we truly are going to become influencers for Him and with Him. And so the title of the message, or perhaps what's on top of your notes, is Questions Influencers Ask. And I believe that Esther... Uh, asked herself, or if she didn't, she certainly in her life and through her behavior modeled the answer to five different questions that I believe that God wants us to ask ourselves as well in order to be effective. And those questions are uh, perhaps similar to what a journalist or a forensics investigator might ask, and that is very simple. Who, what, when, where, and why? 
All right, so pretty simple questions, but I believe that as we look at the story of Esther and begin to pull out from that story, it's going to make a lot of sense. So let's jump in and, um, and do that. Now, just to set the, 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 the backdrop for this play or this story, obviously a true life story that is Esther, uh, I want to tell you what was going on at the time. There's a king called uh, Aswaras or something like that. I actually literally Googled that to figure out what the best way to pronounce that in English was, and then I forgot how to do it. So let's call him by his other name, Xerxes. Okay, that's a little bit more familiar. King Xerxes, maybe you've heard of him. He's a Persian king uh, after the days of Daniel, during the time, towards the end of the time that the uh, uh, Jews were still in captivity and some of them uh, were getting ready to be released to go back to Jerusalem back about 430 some years before Christ. Anyway, um, so he was having this incredible banquet with all of his guy friends uh, from around the kingdom, nobles and whatever, and they were drinking and they were just having fun and, and doing whatever guys in Persia in 430 BC did. Um, and uh, he had this bright idea. I have this beautiful, gorgeous babe for a wife. I'm going to call her and have her come in here and let all my other guy friends look at her and go, wow, you truly do have the most beautiful woman in the entire Persian Empire, right? So it seems like a good plan at the time. Guys, have you ever thought of something that seemed like a good plan? So it seemed like a good plan at the time. So he went ahead and sent his little eunuch messengers, you know, oh, go get her and bring her here. Well, she was like, uh-uh, uh-uh, ain't doing it. You go tell him that I said, you know. <laughs> so his, her name was Queen Vashti. So she totally, like, rejected his effort at, I'm sure uh, he meant it as a compliment, perhaps. Anyway, bringing her to all of his guy friends and saying, this is she beautiful. And uh, so she refused that. And evidently, that's something that kings of Persia were not used to hearing. It's like, no. That thing that you said? No. I'm going to do this thing over here instead. So... He was like, oh no, what do I do? So all of, he had a meeting with all of his confidants and his advisors and his royal you know, council and everything. And they're like, dude, if this gets out, we are in trouble. Because then all the women around the empire are going to be like, uh, yeah, no, I ain't doing those dishes. And what, what's more? You know, we're going shopping and whatever. And it would just be chaos, right, ladies? I mean, it's just going to be like, so they advised him, you need to pull her off the throne. You need to take back that crown. You need to get rid of her as soon as possible. So he did that. He didn't kill her, uh, but he dethroned her, or whatever the word is for that. And, uh, and so then, you know, t a few uh, weeks or months, whatever, went by, and he began to be lonely and think about her and think about, man, you know, I miss having, you know, a queen around and all that. And um, so he asked his advisors, what should I do? And they came up with this brilliant plan. Why don't you send messengers throughout the entire empire? Now, this is the Persian Empire, is like from India all the way over to, I don't know, wherever, somewhere in the West. But, you know, this huge, it wasn't just, it's modern-day Iran, but then it was like, you know, it conquered Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, and, you know, it had gone out from there. So it was this huge, huge empire. And they're like, why don't you send messengers out, collect all of the loveliest young ladies in the entire empire, and bring them all in together, and then have sort of this beauty pageant slash reality show bachelor sort of with a twist thing um, where then you get to decide which one you want to keep and give them the single rose. Wait, maybe I'm confusing. Anyway, however it was, you choose them and they're going to be your new queen, right? So they set up this elaborate plan to do that. And so that's where we're going to pick up our story for that. Um, and I want to read to you um, a little bit from the book of Esther to, uh, to tell that story. So uh, they sent out those messengers. And here is what uh, it says. Esther also, I'm going to start reading it, and they may not have the scriptures behind me, so forgive me, because I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit. But this is in chapter 2, uh, verse 
uh, 8. It says, When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa, which is the capital city, to be put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special foods. He assigned to her seven female attendants, selected from the king's palace, and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai, her a cousin who had raised her, had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard to the harem to find out how Esther was and what had happened to her. Now here's what I want to point out. The first question that I believe that Esther may have asked herself and that we need to ask ourselves is who? The question is who? Who am I? Who has God made me to be? Who does he desire for me to be in the midst of this crazy culture, of this crazy society in which I live? Who does he want me to be? And I believe that Esther uh, attempted to answer that question, but here's what's interesting. In doing so, she didn't uh, assume that proclaiming her Jewish heritage and ancestry and ethnic group was the most important thing to God. So did you catch that verse that said she didn't tell anybody that she was a Jew? She withheld her ethnic background? It's interesting because I don't know about you, but you know, as I read scripture, I'm like, man, God wants us to be bold. He wants us to go out there and be like, hey, I'm a Christian and I don't care who knows it. You know, kind of like Elf, you know, and he's like, I'm happy and I don't care who knows it. Do you remember that scene? Anyway, moving on. Um, I thought that that's what it meant to be, you know, bold in our faith. And here's Esther, this person who kind of, you know, puts that in the background for a little bit and, and is cautious with that aspect of her identity. I believe that God wants us to know this and ponder this and perhaps ask ourselves this. Is the label of being a Christian person always the thing that God wants to lead with? Is, is that title the most important thing for people to know about us initially? Obviously, I'm not saying be ashamed of it. In fact, she was not, it never says that she was asked about it and she lied. That's not what it says. It never says she was ashamed of her heritage. It never says that she wouldn't have said something maybe if somebody had asked. It simply says she didn't choose to make that part of herself the main thing. And I believe that at times we as believers have struggled with this because we, we want to have the bumper sticker on our car. We want to have the t-shirt that says, you know, Jesus spelled in 45 different languages and, and all that kind of stuff. And we want to walk in like, hey, the Christian is in the house. You know, let the fire fall from heaven. Now, sometimes God may use that strategy but what about when he doesn't, right? Sometimes he want, may want to use a different strategy. He may want us to conduct ourselves in a way that answers the question, who do you want me to be, God, in a different way? See, here's what the Apostle John, the closest disciple to Jesus, said. He said in chapter 13, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. All men will know that you are my disciples or my followers if you love one another. What's the command there? Love, right? Then he goes on several years later in 90 AD or 96 AD, uh, almost at the time of his death, he had been exiled, all the other gospels had been written, and John finds himself on this island of Patmos, and he's writing and he's penning these words, and he says this, hey, uh, whoever walks in love walks in God, for God is love, Right? So maybe God is wanting us to say, hey God, what is the aspect of you that is, I mean, 
there's a lot of things said about God, but, but it's hard to find in Scripture anything that is more poignant and more emphasized than the fact that God is love. By his very nature, he loves. He can't help himself. He loves people. doesn't mean that he doesn't judge. It doesn't mean that he isn't holy and righteous. But he loves, right? In that same epistle of 1 John, it goes on to say this. It says, uh, uh, do not love the world or anything in the world because the world and all that it has, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life are not from God. So it's not telling us, hey, just love the world and just be okay with everything and just kind of blend in and don't stand out and don't rock the boat. That's not what he's saying. But I believe that it is admonishing us to let love be the characteristic that fills our lives, that it be our very heartbeat, that God's heart beat in us for the people that don't yet know him and don't yet love him. Because if we make that our identity, if that becomes the first answer to who am I, I believe that it may fall upon open ears that would otherwise have been closed if we come in with all of our labels, you know. This is what I am. This is how I voted. This is what I stand for. What about you? All of a sudden we're going to find ourselves in a heated debate or perhaps an argument or perhaps a fight where God may have said, okay, that's fine. I'm not saying that that's not the right, that that's not the right way to look at those things, but, but I wanted to come in with love first and soften a heart and then bring truth, right? Jesus is that perfect mix of grace and truth. Here's what I believe. We have been loved unfairly. Think about that. We have been loved unfairly by God. It was not fair, the love that he showed me. I don't know about you, but I know for myself, it was not fair the way in which he loved me, and yet he did. He chose to save me and forgive me of my sins that separated me from him. And in the same way, he's called me and each one of us to love unfairly. So if that can become part of our identity, to know that we are loved unfairly, unfairly loved and called to love unfairly, how would our lives be different? Esther answered that question and became an influencer. What about this? What about the question of uh, what? What? God, what have you called me to do right now? What are the tools that you've given me to influence? How do you want me to use those for your purposes? So here we come to the question that we posed at the beginning. How do cosmetics and perfumes play a huge part in God's amazing plan to save his people? Well, we're going to answer that question. So coming back to chapter 2, I'm going to read a little bit more here, and you tell me if cosmetics and perfumes were not a part of God's plan. Starting with verse 10, it says this. Uh, excuse me. No, we read that. Starting with verse 12. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed. Think about that, 12 months. Okay, beauty treatments. Prescribed for the women. Six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. This is how, now that, ladies, is that like a pedicure on steroids kind of thing? That's like, wow. Talk about, you know, dipping. I don't know if they had like machines that like, bloop, 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 bloop. We're dipping. Bloop, 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 bloop. Now we're pulling out, you know, dry off, back in. You know, I don't know exactly how they did it. But it was a crazy process, right? With all of the best, you know, fancy creams and lotions. Just checking to see if there's any Nacho Libre fans in the room. There's not. Okay, let's move on. Fancy creams and lotions. Anyway, um, but they did it. This is how uh, she would go to the king. Uh, verse 13. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her 
by name. And here is, uh, I'm going to keep reading here real quickly. Uh, Check this out. (coughs) When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of Uncle uh, Abitail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, and the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Wow. So out of all these women who had gone in to the king, Esther was chosen. And here's what uh, I want to highlight today. I mean, we read that, we're like, sweet, victory, she got the rose, she was the finalist. Woohoo! love story, Hollywood ending, where's the, you know, violins? Da, 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 da. You know, there's an orchestra hidden behind the little, you know, bush there. Um, but here's the deal, think about where she was 12 months earlier. Where was this Esther who now had, been, had a royal crown put on her head, had been given authority, had been given favor, had been given influence at the very highest level of this empire? Where was she just 12 months before? Let me read a couple of verses here from earlier that chapter. (coughs) Starting in verse 5, it says this, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, along with those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter and when her father and mother died. Now we find out several things about this young Jewish girl that are very interesting, that sort of stand juxtaposed a little bit to where we see her now crowned as the queen of the empire with great glory, with great majesty, with great pomp and circumstance. And not to mention a bunch of beauty treatments and lotions and fancy creams and lotions. So what do we learn about her? She was an orphan. Her mom and dad had died at a young age. What about this? She was an immigrant. She wasn't in her home culture, right? She probably, she may have even spoken with a bit of an accent. We don't know. What about this? She was a refugee. Her great-great-grandfather had been taken from Jerusalem, her home city, from his nation and been brought by force to live in Persia, or in Babylon at the time, and then to Persia. She was young. That wasn't a plus in those days, right? Maybe even nowadays, you think to yourself, some of you that are younger, like, how can I influence my society? Man, I'm I'm a student. I mean, nobody's listening to me, right? Perhaps we feel that way. At that time, it was even more so. Man, if you were young, you were meant to be seen and not heard. You've maybe heard that. What about this? She was a woman. In that day and age, if you wanted to influence a nation for God, if you want it to be used in a great purpose for God, you probably wouldn't start by saying, yeah, I want to be a woman and do all those things, right? It's kind of like the farmer who was asked by a guy who was lost out in the country, hey, how do you get to, uh, uh, you know, this other uh, town uh, that's about five miles away? And he's like, well, he goes, I got to be honest with you, if I was going to that town, I probably wouldn't start here. Anyway. If you wanted to influence, it's okay, you'll get it on the way home. If you wanted to influence somebody, you wouldn't start by being a woman, right? That wasn't positioning yourself in a place of power and authority in that society and in that culture. And yet, that's where she found herself. What about this? She was Jewish. 
the Jewish people had their own customs, their own, uh, you know, culture, their own way of doing things that didn't always fit in, right? Their own way of eating and not eating certain foods. And that wasn't always a plus in terms of making friends and influencing people, right? We're going to see in a minute how God used those things. But so we found out then, last but not least, we found out that she was beautiful, right? And um, uh, so here's the deal. Out of all those things, six out of the eight things that we just talked about are negative things or things that we would consider a liability, things that we would consider to be working against us. And Esther may have considered to be working against her if she were going to be used in a great way for God. And I want to ask you that question. What things are part of your story that you look back and go, man, I wish that hadn't happened. Man, if I had only made a better decision back then, wow, I would be able to be used for God's glory in a greater way. Man, if I'd only paid more attention when I was a kid, you know, and hadn't made those mistakes, wow, where would I be now? How could God be able to use me? Man, if I were only a man, or if I were only this, or if I were only older, or only a little bit younger, or if I only had this education, or if I only hadn't dealt with that addiction, or if I only hadn't had that divorce or that problem in my marriage, man, God, then I would be useful to you. If you felt that way, if the enemy has bombarded you with those thoughts, I want to encourage you today that every part of your story, the good, the bad, the ugly, God wants to be able to use that as part of your story for His glory, to help place you in that what, in that place of calling, right? That, that you will discover and you will begin to bear fruit and begin to be used of God in that very place that has been at times the consequence or where the path has led because of even some of those undesirable things in our life. God is amazing at that, right? We spend all of our time sometimes building our resume, right? If anybody's, you know, been looking for a job lately, and I'm not a job coach or anything like that, but I think the purpose of building a resume is to make yourself look good, right? Is that kind of, am I on the general, yeah, I mean, Brad, you're a business owner, is that kind of it? Okay, you know, kind of, you know, point out your strengths, you know, highlight your abilities, maybe some of your accomplishments, and prove to these people who may hire you that you're not a complete idiot, that their company will not completely, you know, nosedive into the ground the minute that they hire you. And that's okay to do those things, and we need to be looking at those things. What am I good at? What are my strengths, right? She did. It says she found favor. She, she used her beauty and other things that God had given her. She submitted herself to a process of developing those skills and those attributes, and God used that. But think about the fact that God doesn't just use those things in our life, but sometimes He uses even those things that are so unlikely to be used by him. Those parts of our story that we wish to erase are the very things that God wants to turn around and use to confirm what it is that he has called us to, what those tools are, what those challenges are in your past, and use those for his glory. Where we were born, the socioeconomic status that we have, athletic ability, musical ability, mechanical, intellectual, whatever, right? God can use all of that. Here's the deal. The third question that she asked, I believe, was when. And it goes together with the fourth. When and where are two questions that complement each other. And here's what happened after she was made queen. I want to summarize a bit of the story for you. There was a guy named Haman who was a very bad guy. He was very proud. He was very full of himself. And he was one of the king's top advisors in his court. And the king, King Xerxes, chose to honor and exalt Haman above all of the other advisors in the court. This is in chapter 3. And so... Uh, so all of a sudden, when Haman would come into the palace, all of the other courtiers would bow before him and would give him honor. But Mordecai, this guy who had raised Esther, her cousin, but who was older, 
was also a scribe in the, in the palace and whatnot, and he refused to bow down to this guy named Haman. And Haman was furious about that. It just ate at him, and he was like, you know, have you ever had somebody just, you know, you know, you know they don't respect you, and they let you know, and it just eats you up. Haman was so angry. And others asked him, hey, are you going to punish Mordecai? Are you going to just humble him? Maybe have, you know, 40 lashes or whatever. You know, cut off his pinky toe or, I don't know, do something. You know, we're in Persia. It's legal. You know, you can do that kind of stuff. He's like, no. My plan is actually to destroy this entire race of people from the entire Persian Empire. That was what he was after. He was like, I'm going to use this to actually not just get revenge on him, but to destroy and annihilate every Jewish person in every corner of the empire. So he set out with this plot, and he met with the king, and, you know, maybe had a couple of beers together, or whatever they did back then. And uh, he was like, hey, there's this people group that just don't fit in. You know, they just don't play well with others. Um, they kind of have their own thing going. And, you know, king, I think it would just be better if we just, just wiped them out. Just you know, just one foul swoop, just get rid of them. And uh, so the king was like, again, after a couple of beers, seemed like a good idea, right? Hey, sounds good to me. Here's my ring. Make the law, sign it with the royal seal of the king of Persia that cannot be changed. And so that's what he did. He rolled the dice. They established a date where for one day, Everywhere in every city and every village and every country town, everywhere across the entire empire of Persia. Now this is millions and millions of people. Anybody who had a Jewish neighbor or a, a Jewish family or whatever in their neighborhood and didn't like them, they would be able to go and ransack them, pillage them, kill them, the women, the children, every single one, and take all of their stuff as plunder. Can you imagine? It says that the day that that edict went out, it went out on the fastest horses that the king had, the messenger courier horses. And it says at the end of that chapter that, that the city of Susa was perplexed. I mean, they were like, what just happened? What, what just happened? I mean, can you imagine? Like, there's going to be a day where somebody can come out after you and your family just because whatever it is, the color of your skin, or because you're a believer in Jesus, or whatever. And, and they're going to kill you and take all your stuff. And, you're just, and you can't defend yourself. That is the situation that the people of God, the Jews, found themselves in. And here's what happened. Picking up the story in chapter 4, Mordecai came as near as he could to the palace where Esther was, and of course she was queen and whatnot, and he was very troubled. He tore his clothes, which was the custom back then when people were grieving and mourning. Tore his clothes, and Esther sent out a messenger to ask him what was wrong, and through the messenger they communicated, and he, he told them all the plots that the king had come up with and all of the law that had been made and while she was thinking it over it says this and I'm going to read in verse 12 when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai he sent back this answer to Esther do not think that because you are in the king's house you alone of all the Jews will escape for if you remain silent at this time relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place but you and your father's family will perish and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Can you just say that? For such a time as this. Say that one more time. For such a time as this. I believe that asking ourselves when is such a powerful question in order to cooperate with God's purposes because God had placed Esther in this place 
at a unique point in history, at a unique place on his timeline, where she would be able to have influence in a way that nobody else could. The laws of the Medes and the Persians were that once the edict had been sealed, there was no revoking it. There was no changing it. It was going to happen. But here's the deal. She had that question, God, when, right? Maybe you find yourself asking that same question. God, when should I speak up? Or when should I keep silent? Maybe something's going on at work and I'm not sure, I'm not comfortable with it. I'm not sure if this is honoring you. God, is now the time to say, this isn't right, everyone? We've got to change this? Or is this the time to kind of hold back a little bit? How can I cooperate, God, with your timetable? See, Ecclesiastes is this book in the Bible written by the wisest man who ever lived, King Solomon. It says this, there's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to speak up, and a time to be silent. Right? We know that there's different times. And if Esther had uh, chosen to speak up too soon, I would submit to you that the book of Esther might be a lot shorter. Which for those of you that are like, I like to read entire books of the Bible, that could be a cool thing. Like, wow, it's like one verse. And here's what it might say. Esther 1, verse 1. Jewish girl killed for not honoring king. The end. Right? She spoke up. She's like, I'm not going to be no part of that harem. No, I'm a Jewish girl. Don't you know my God? <laughs> Done. Right? She spoke up too soon. What about this? If she spoke up too late, this would, Esther might be a little bit longer, but it would say something like this. Esther is, uh, this is what it would say. Jewish girl hides identity, becomes queen, but is subsequently killed along with her people in a mass genocide. The end. <laughs> she waited too long to speak up, right? So you can tell neither one is the answer. We've got to have, and she had to have, the wisdom of God to know when was the time to speak up. And I believe that in this day and age, guys, we as the body of Christ need to be asking the same question and we need to have the same direction of the Holy Spirit. A lot of you might be like, well, Pastor DJ, that's your job to tell us when, right? If they go to a PG-13 movie, but if it's an R movie, then <laughs> that's the time to speak up. You know, if they're going to, you know, drink uh, O'Doul's, then I can go along with it. But the minute that they bring that Coors Light in at work, I'm speaking up, dadgummit. You know, you're supposed to tell us, Pastor DJ, what's right, what's wrong. Tell us when to speak up. No, I'm not. I'm not going to. Because guess what? That's the Holy Spirit's job, right? I'm going to tell you that you need to ask the question, and I need to ask the question, Lord, when? Is this a time to be bold and speak up? Is it a time to hold back and wait and just wait for your timeline, right? If we're not afraid, you see, if we, if we truly desire God's glory more than anything else, then the enemy's not going to have that upper hand like, oh, you're just ashamed. Because it's going to be like, no, I'm not. I'm just waiting for the Holy Spirit to guide me. I'm waiting for his direction on when to say something or when not. Perhaps in a relationship with a friend and God is drawing them little by little and you're like, wow, you know what, God, when is the time to ask them if I can pray for them or when is the time to maybe invite them to church or when is the time to, I don't know, you know, um, buy them a card that, that just says I'm concerned for you and I, and I appreciate you and, you know, I love you as a friend, you know, whatever. You know, there's a timing in God's kingdom and when we seek Him and when we ask Him, He is longing to lead us and guide us in that timing. And it will be successful. It will not be, you got your head chopped off in chapter 1, verse 1. And it will not be, you waited too long out of fear and timidity, and all of a sudden, God wasn't able to use you. It'll be right on the money. God was able to use you because you spoke up in the right time. Where goes along with that, right? God, where have you strategically placed me in order to influence? Where have you purposefully placed me? How can I strategically serve you right here 
where I am. Let's read a little bit more of, uh, of that story. And it says this, beginning with verse 15 of chapter 4. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. I want to pause there for a second. The king had established this rule that no one was able to come into his presence uninvited or there was immediate pain of death. Nobody was able to come in. And so, you know, she knew this thing was going on. This law had been, it had been proclaimed already. The messages had already gone out. This thing's going to happen. And she couldn't wait necessarily to be invited to the king's presence. So she had the choice, either break that law and risk her life or sit back and allow complete destruction to happen to her and all of her people. So this is what she said. I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes. Again, she utilized the skills and the strengths that she had learned all during that process of learning what it was that the king expected, how to approach the king. How could she use those things God had given her, right? Even her beauty, yes. It can be something that God is able to use at times, just like anything else. She used those things, put on that dress, and, a, and, and she says she stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance, and when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, this was the moment of truth. This was the moment where everything could have been over for Esther. But it says this, when he saw her standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Her life was spared and it was because she was humble, because she w had learned where God had placed her, right? God had put her in a unique situation, in a unique place where she had an ability. Anybody else who would have approached would have been stopped three gates before and hauled away. But Esther had been placed in that unique position where she had access. She had a seat at the table. I believe God wants us to ask ourselves, Lord, where have you given me a seat at the table? God, is it in my business? Is it with my friends? Is it with somebody at the gym? You know, is it, where is it, God? Is it a camping trip? Is it a fishing trip? I mean, where have you allowed me to have influence in people's lives? Where have you put me in a place of friendship, in a place of being an employer or an employee, in a place of being a coach or a teacher or a father or mother or son or daughter? God, where have you placed me? God, how can I strategically serve you here? That's what Esther did. And she utilized that and stepped out boldly when the time came. Here's what happens. When we're willing to do that, right? When we're willing to ask ourselves, God, who do you want me to be? God, what is my calling? God, how do I utilize, you know, these tools that you've given me, these parts of my story for your glory? God, when is the timing? And God, where have you placed me? When we ask those questions of ourselves and respond in faith like Esther did, the last one, the last question to be answered is glory, is why. And why is God's glory is the reason. God's glory is the objective. God's glory is the end game. It's, it's the reason why God wants to use us. It's so that He 
can be glorified. Yes, he'd be able to do things a lot quicker and easier. Just send 100,000 angels and kill the bad guys and bring in the good guys and, you know, it's done. But he chooses to work through his sons and daughters. He chooses to work through our faith. Think about that. He puts us in a situation where it's like, oh, man, Lord, oh, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to work out. God, ah, I'm having to trust you here. Anybody been in that situation? God, I'm, okay, Lord, how, who, what, when, where? Lord, I'm trusting you. God, I'm putting my faith in you. You see, he is glorified when his sons and daughters step out in that way. And we see great glory. Check out what this says. In chapter 9, verses 20 through 22, let me summarize real quickly what happened. The king invited Esther and said, what is your request? What do you want? Up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. And Esther said, I want you to come to a banquet. So the king, and she said, I want you to bring a Haman, your highest exalted official, to a banquet. So he came to a banquet the next day, and he asked her again, what do you want up to half of the kingdom? And she said, I want you to come tomorrow to a banquet. So they came back with Haman, and Haman the whole time was like, oh yeah, I'm the only, you know, guy who got invited plus the king. I'm bad, you know, that kind of thing. And so they went to this banquet, and uh, uh, the king finally asked her, please tell me, what is it up to half of the kingdom? She said, oh king, I beg for my life and the life of my people. I ask that my life be given back to me. And the king was upset and angry and infuriated. He's like, what? What do you mean? What's happening? Who's threatening you? Who's threatening your people? And she was able to stand up and point to Haman who was sitting right next to the king. Said, this vile man, he's the one who has issued this edict for our destruction and annihilation. Can you imagine instantly the blood, I'm sure, left Haman's body. He turned pale. He began to tremble. The king marched out of that room and Haman, it says that Haman knew his fate had already been decided. But he didn't stop there. He immediately threw himself upon the couch where the queen had been reclining. They used to eat reclining on a couch. And he threw himself upon that, began to beg for his life. The king walks back in, sees him there with the queen and says, will you literally molest the queen in my very own house? And at that very time, the guards came in, put a sack over his head and took him out to be executed. So you see, he asked her, hey, what can I do? And she said, please, let's issue a reverse edict. Let's, let's change this. And so they brought Mordecai, her cousin, in, and she told the king who he was, and he was able to counsel the king. So they issued additional decrees that said that the people of, uh, the Jewish people all around the empire could defend themselves on that day, and they could actually attack anyone who came against them or who they even thought would come against them and take their stuff and defend themselves. And that was what happened. The people of God were able to defend themselves and God spared their lives. This is what it says in chapter 9, verse 20. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. Wow, that's the kind of God we serve. God wants to turn our sorrow into joy, our mourning into a day of celebration, but not just ours. He wants to do that for the people that don't yet know Him. He wants to reveal Himself to people who don't yet know who He is in a way that they can truly come to worship Him and truly know His great love. So we asked ourselves at the beginning, you know, why isn't God mentioned by name in the book of Esther? Maybe you have some thoughts about that by now. Here's what I think. I think it's because God wanted to remove his name and keep his name out of something, but yet allow all of his fingerprints 
to be in that book. Right? That's what Scott Shugart told me this morning. He's like, God's fingerprints are all in that book. We see every evidence of his work. He was the one who placed people in strategic places. He was the one who gave favor. He was the one who gave authority. He was the one who worked with his sons and daughters' faith and trust and courage and gave them what they needed to stand up at the right time, speak up at the right time, be silent at the right time, but ultimately to accomplish his great purpose of salvation. And I believe that God wants to use you and me in the same way. God wants us to know, church, that he is sovereign over everything, not just over the church, not just over an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. He is sovereign over our workplaces. He is sovereign over our schools. He is sovereign over the government. He is sovereign over every area of our lives. And if we will believe that and we will trust him and and begin to ask those questions, God, how, who, where, when, we will see that why of his glory played out through us in powerful ways. You see, guys, I believe God wants you to know this. I really do. If you haven't heard anything else today, I want you to hear this. Believe God wants you to know that you are on the front lines of the kingdom of God. All right? Sometimes we, 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 we come to church and, you know, we might see somebody teaching or doing something or singing or whatever. Like, oh, wow, you know, I think they're probably on the front lines. That's kind of, you know, maybe in a, a parallel reality I could be something like that. Or That's not what it is. Every one of us, Esther was not a church leader. Neither was Daniel. Neither was Joseph. They were people that God used in the world of business, in the world of commerce, in the world of politics, right? There was leadership that God used in so many different ways, but he used it for his glory. Where has God placed you? How does God want to reveal himself through you to people that, to be honest with you, I would never have access to? There's people that you sit with on a regular basis that I would never be able to sit at that table. There's people that trust you with information, with heartache, with struggle, that you might be able to pray with that I would never be able to pray with. I'm telling you what, this room is filled with dozens and probably hundreds of people that stand to be influenced and touched by the kingdom of God if we will stand up and say, yes, Lord, use me, God. Here I am, Lord, send me. I don't have to be a full-time missionary. I don't have to be a pastor. I don't have to be whatever, a leader in the church. I can be right where I am, right where you've placed me at this time for such a time as this, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to speak your word, God, to represent you, to give your love. And if we do that, this world will be changed. Let's stand to our feet as we pray together. God, we thank you so much for your great love for us, God. And I thank you so much for your word to us today. God, I pray that the seed that has been planted in our hearts would begin to grow right now by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would apply this word to everyone who has heard it, Lord. You know every unique situation. God, you know every hurdle that we face. You know every part of our story that we're ashamed of or confused about or wondering how it could have been allowed to happen. And yet you also know how you're going to use those things to allow us to relate to certain people, to allow us to have a voice in a certain crowd that we never would have otherwise. God, I pray that your people would be stirred right now. God, I pray that we would be stirred with the urgency that God... This world desperately needs your love and your truth. But God, you're not just going to do it without us. Even though you could, you've chosen to do it through us as your sons and daughters. God, fill us with your compassion, with your love for people. God, that your glory might be revealed 
right where we are, and even to the nations, to the ends of the earth, as it was in Esther's case, that even the nations that surrounded them were able to see a God who protects and, and blesses His people because He's in covenant with them. God, we thank You for all this in the precious name of Jesus, Your Son. Amen.